Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Suzanne Nossel, is the CEO of PEN America. She's also the author of a book called Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, which is out with a new paperback edition. And I wanted to talk to her about that book, about free speech, about many related topics. Um, So Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So I don't know. This is like such a big, obvious question, but like... Why is free speech important today? I mean, why, why why do a book on this? It's obviously a topic that has existed in society for centuries. But like, what made you think that like now is a moment where we needed a new treatment of the free speech issue? Sure. I mean, I would say for me, the most immediate impetus for writing the book was a growing concern that I have that we are at risk of losing a rising generation when it comes to the principle of free speech and that free speech has been often pitted against other principles and concerns of equity and inclusivity and diversity that are at the forefront of, in particular, what young people are concerned with and working to drive forward in our society. And at times, those movements, which are essential and noble, have come at the expense of free speech and uh, crossed over into a kind of censoriousness, not, I don't think, intentionally, but rather out of sort of a lack of understanding of free speech principles, of why they're important to causes on the left, and of how it is possible, in my view, to reconcile the robust defense of free speech with the advancement of an equitable and inclusive society. And so what I came to be worried about was that if things continue to unfold in this direction, that free speech as an ideal could really be left by the wayside. And I see that as risky for all sorts of reasons. And I, I devote the last chapter in the book to, you know, just a reiteration of why I think and why, you know, for so many epochs, thinkers, constitutionalists, lawmakers, politicians, philosophers have believed in the principle of free speech as a 
catalyst for truth, as an engine for the advancement of science, as a foundation for creative expression, as a way to drive forward society. And so the book really is an argument that free speech can and must kind of underwrite the next phase of a more equal and inclusive America. So this was absolutely the the view of free speech that I was sort of brought up with. I mean, not just, I think, from my parents, but when I was in school, which is now, I realize, a frighteningly long time ago. You know, the, the way I was kind of taught things was this famous case, right? We had the Nazis, they wanted to do this march in a town full of Holocaust survivors, and the ACLU litigates on their behalf, not because Nazis are amazing, and not because it's not genuinely injurious to the feelings of Holocaust survivors to see this demonstration, but that by winning the case, you establish a legal precedent that is now useful for everybody, right? If marginalized groups need to demonstrate for civil rights or or whatever cause they want that may, I mean, it's deliberately unpopular often, right? I mean, when you have a new claim for rights for some kind of group, typically won't be accepted by most people. And so to have a legal precedent that says, look, even in this really extreme case, you can't discriminate against demonstrators based on their viewpoint is a powerful tool for people working for justice, not just for Nazis, right? I guess it's like an old-fashioned free speech view, but it's certainly... You know, the the one that I was always schooled in as a person, as a writer, as as a liberal, and, and that's what you're talking about here, really. Yeah, that's part of it, absolutely, is that, you know, on balance, if you give authorities and particularly governments the power to more aggressively police speech and to draw lines on the basis of viewpoint and ideology and decide what perspectives are within and outside of bounds— those authorities are going to use that power in self-serving ways. They're going to use it to suppress dissent, to silence their critics, to elevate their own perspectives. And so, you know, the premise of the First Amendment is really to deny that power, even when that power is denied in an instance where it might be used in a way that we would agree with, perhaps to silence Nazis or racists. We might applaud that in the near term. But once that power has been granted, you know, those officials will be free to use it as they see fit. And on balance, they will use it in self-serving ways. So I think that's part of it. But what I try to address in the book is the ways in which I think that kind of simple notion that you and I were schooled on has been legitimately challenged in our current paradigm as we kind of wrestle with these next phases of what it means to realize a more equal society. And I think one aspect that has traditionally been underplayed by free speech advocates, it does relate to the harms of speech. I think free speech advocates historically have been hesitant to cop to the idea that it's not just sticks or stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. You know, in fact, I have a whole chapter of the book devoted to the harms of speech and the fact that the scientific evidence that particularly people who are subject to noxious, menacing speech over the course of their lives, stereotypes, derogatory depictions, it can inflict psychological harm, it can impair academic performance, there are even physiological 
harms that are associated with that. And, you know, from my perspective, I think it's important as a free speech defender to acknowledge that, to say, you know, those harms are serious. They need to be taken account of. We need to remediate them. Because once you've acknowledged that, you can also then say, and I think it's important to note that they can be exaggerated, overstated, presumed, even sometimes manufactured. And so I think we need a reasoned discussion of what the genuine harms of speech are and what we as a society can do about them, rather than sort of trying to sweep that under the rug a little bit, kind of in the name of free speech. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the book. Because, yeah, I mean, part of the traditional argument, I think, has been to say that, like, it's just, like, not true, right? That, like, hateful speech harms people. And you can see that that's not really right. I mean, people suffer as a result of certain kinds of speech, particularly when it's repeated, right? When it's seemingly backed up by society. And I think we have a lot of evidence that what appears in the media matters, right? Like what is out there in the culture is actually important to people and their lives and their and their projects. And that does lead me to wonder though, like once you make that concession, how do you maintain this kind of hard distinction between speech must be free, but in all kinds of other spheres of activity, like we do regulate what you can do, right? Like you can't just poke me constantly, right? Like I'm allowed to not have like sticks shoved in my body. So like, why can't people seek protection from harmful speeches if we acknowledge that it does cause harms? Well, I don't rule out protection of any sort, you know, not at all. I think societal taboos and voluntary restraint are extremely important to keeping free speech alive and keeping our discourse open. I don't advocate hateful speech. I don't think, you know, one needs to champion it. Where I really have the gravest concern is when it comes to empowering particularly governments, but also to a lesser degree, institutions could be private colleges or corporations to aggressively mediate and moderate speech and call things out of bounds, ban and punish speech. And it goes to that concern about how those powers may be used and abused and to kind of line drawing. I mean, when someone pokes you or, or punches you in the stomach, you know, that's a pretty kind of concrete act. If the proof is there and, you know, you were tossed back in your seat, you know, we know it happened. We know you experienced it the same way that I would have experienced it. But when it comes to slurs and derogatory speech, you know, there's some things like, you know, let's say the N-word, which has come into controversy many, many times over in recent years. And, you know, the, the reaction to that word has changed. I think how people need to understand the import of that word has changed. So that's an extreme example, but it's still debatable, you know, whether there are any context in which an articulation of that word may be appropriate. You know, what if it's used? Does it matter what the race of the person is? Does it matter whether it's being used in an artistic context? And so, you know, even with that very extreme kind of singular slur with its unique position in American history, and I think, you know, in so many ways paradigmatic of harmful speech, you know, there still are contextual factors that determine how we ought to react. And so empowering the government to punish every instance of the use of that word, you know, I think it's easy to see why that would be 
overreach, you know, never mind all of the lesser gradations of offensive and derogatory speech, you know, things that really are contested that may be offensive to one person and not whatsoever to another, something that has a a linguistic meaning that you have to understand, something that is being used satirically, something that's being said in the context of insiders in a particular group where they can, you know, kind of rib and ridicule each other with language that might otherwise be offensive. And so I think inviting the government to come in and police all of that and punish people and ban things, you know, that's where to me, you get into a really constricted kind of discourse with overweening government role and dictating what's within and outside of bounds. So we've been talking about the government here, which obviously is an important actor in free speech matters. But I also think That seems to me to be the area, at least in America, the contemporary United States, where we have the least disagreement. Like, I don't really see big movements afoot for Congress to, like, ban certain words or terms or, I don't know, like, have a censorship regime somewhere. Or, I mean, am I missing that? Like, is there a sort of big question in public opinion about government action? There is, and increasingly so. I mean, I'd say, you know, for me, top of mind right now would be, you know, this spate of state-level bans on the teaching of critical race theory. I mean, that is a ban, an ideologically driven, viewpoint-based ban on content and expression in both secondary schools and in higher ed. And it's been adopted, I think, now in seven states. There are bills in about a dozen more And so it is sort of a notion in my book that when we think about free speech, we need to think about a lot more than just the First Amendment, because there are so many arenas where these issues are contested, including on college campuses, not all of which are public universities, and particularly on social media, where there are sort of raging debates about where these boundaries should lie and how we should interpret the obligations of the platforms when it comes to curbing the harms of speech and enabling open expression All of that's true, but we should not lose sight of the First Amendment and the danger that government poses to our expressive rights. We've also here at PEN America documented over the last couple of years a really alarming spike in state-level laws curtailing protest rights, limiting where and when you can protest, enhancing penalties. And so I think that notion, which, you know, I in some ways, you know, I think it's a comfortable notion that we've lived with for a long time, which is that our basic free speech rights in relation to the government are very secure in this country, it's being undercut in a variety of ways and principally at the state level. And so I think it's definitely not a moment for complacency on that score. Okay, so I want to sort of put a pin in the social media question, because that's obviously important. But come back to this, because this is the other thing that I kind of hear a lot from people on the left, which is, You know, we had this dialogue going back a few years ago where people mostly on the right and the center were saying, "Uh uh-oh, you know, people on the left, young people, college students don't appreciate the value of free speech. And now, X years later, we have conservative state legislators and they're saying, oh, you know, you can't teach uh, 1619 Project essays in your classroom. And so people look at that and they say, Look, this whole neutral principles idea is fake. 
and you just have a power struggle, there is always society defining what is inbounds and what is out of bounds. And what you ought to do is try to fight for what you believe in. And we are trying to tug the window of acceptability in one direction. On the right, they're trying to tug the window of acceptability in the other direction. But like going to bat for the right of people to say racist stuff doesn't accomplish anything. And it doesn't stop people from flipping on a dime about these things or, you know, drawing distinctions, right? Because they will say, oh, you know, yesterday I was talking about free speech. Today we're talking about curriculum design in public schools. So I can distinguish the cases. There's no hypocrisy here. So where does that leave us, right? When we're outside the kind of ivory tower of constitutional law, right? Like in the real world, does standing up for neutrality deliver these kind of benefits? Yeah, look, you're right. It's nothing new. I mean, this sort of old phrase of free speech for me and not for thee, and the idea that people are much more chagrined when it comes to encroachments on free speech in relation to speech that they agree with, you know, that's age old. And there's a study that I talk about in the book about actually how the problem's gotten worse in the Supreme Court, uh, looking at whether Supreme Court judges have sided with the free speech argument in individual cases over time. And unfortunately, we see sort of a mirror of what we're witnessing in society at large, which is increased polarization and justices appointed by Republican presidents increasingly likely to side more often with conservative speech when it is challenged than with liberal and using that ideological filter, whether they're overtly conscious of it or not, playing a more prominent role and seeming to dictate how they come out on these free speech cases. And so it's a real problem. I would make the argument, though, nonetheless, that the objective principle of free speech is an essential one. And I think we saw this during the Trump years, that even though you know that was a president who had little or no regard for the First Amendment, and we sued him in federal court for his attacks against journalists, his threats and acts of retaliation against journalists and the media. Yet we know if the First Amendment weren't in place, he would have gone much further, and his punitive impulses would have guided him probably to throw journalists in jail. And so I think it's an example of where that neutral principle, you know, having that enshrined in the Constitution, having judges who are obligated to uphold it, even though it's imperfect, even though it becomes politicized, it's certainly inflected by politics. I think it would be a huge mistake to write it off, and particularly on the left, to say just because there's hypocrisy on the right in relation to free speech, that we're ready to cast this principle aside. Because if you look historically, overwhelmingly, it is those on the forefront of social movements, those in marginalized groups, those who are dissenting and challenging the power structure who rely most heavily on these protections. And so it would really be sort of a a cutting off your nose to spite your face. Okay, let's take a break. And then I want to talk about sort of private actors and free speech. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood, 
Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So there's a lot of ways into this, but one thing that occurs to me is there's a difference between kind of formal principles of free speech, right, legal principles, and kind of cultural values of free speech and free-flowing discourse. Um, And those can be things, like, you can believe in both of them, that, like, I want to live in and inhabit personally institutions that have a lot of free-flowing discourse and place a lot of value on free speech. But there's also the idea that, like, people are allowed to have their own communities that decide what their own standards are, right? Like, this is my knitting club and and you have to follow the rules to be in it. And like, that is also freedom, right? Like the freedom to have your group and decide what it wants to do. And I feel like those ideas come into tension with some of this stuff around social media companies, right? Where there's one kind of free speech impulse that says, Look, you know, Twitter is like a kind of digital public square. And so, you know, we don't want this anonymous company like censoring people. And there's another view that's like, no, look, like this is a company, the people who work there and who own it and the stakeholders, like they have the right to do what they want with it. And like, that's free speech. And I see essentially people on both sides of these kind of disputes about digital media sort of claiming the mantle of free speech or having some, at least a piece of it, on their side. And I wonder where you sort of think about that in terms of what do we want out of these technology platforms? I think you make a very good point. And, you know, you're right that people, you know, one of the freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment, of course, is freedom of association. And so the ability to create a society or a table at a college dining hall or a club where there are certain ideological 
underpinnings that everybody subscribes to is you know very much an act of free expression and freedom of assembly. You know, I think what's important there is that you enter into those environments voluntarily, that you don't sort of sit down at the dining table in the college dorm only to learn that, you know, your political opinions are out of bounds and you have to move seats. That should not be, you know, the way that it is policed. I think where the tension comes in, you know, as you point out, is just the scale of these platforms and the dominion that they have over such vast swaths of our public discourse to the point where, you know, this is not, you know, Twitter is not an environment where kind of a bunch of people are coming together for a common purpose. It really, you know, while we don't call it a public utility, you know, in many ways, it functions as that. And so does Facebook. And we know that, for example, the run up to an election, a vast portion of our political deliberation is happening in these arenas. And so I think there is a distinct public interest in what happens there. I am leery of government intervention in how online content is moderated because I think that the chance of a legislator getting that right is vanishingly small. And I think even if you believe that the European Union or perhaps the U.S. Congress might be capable of making good laws, once that precedent is set, it's going to empower governments all over the world, including in authoritarian settings, to do what many of them are already doing, but sharply delimiting online speech. I think that is a major loss for free speech globally and that you know we're better off with the principle that governments should largely be hands off, particularly when it comes to kind of content and especially viewpoint-based discrimination, which is kind of the most sensitive and protected area of speech under the First Amendment. And you know, that leaves the question of what to do, because nor do I think that unfettered discretion on the part of Silicon Valley with all of its pecuniary motives, penchant for secrecy, unwillingness to bear responsibility, lack of accountability, you know, all the flaws and pitfalls that we see with leaving it to companies to their own devices when it comes to trying to strike this balance between social media as an enabler of free speech, which we have to acknowledge it is. And just the examples of that are endless and also, you know, a brush fire of dangers, whether it's online harassment or hateful speech or disinformation that can corrode democracy. And so this is an epic struggle of how we get it right. There are experiments, you know, I'm part of one, which is the Facebook Oversight Board and whether there can be a role for experts in civil society and academia to help mediate these questions. That is an open question. It remains. It's an experiment. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I think we need more experimentation. I mean, I just, I wonder, scale obviously seems relevant to these kind of things. I mean, I've been paying some attention to, without really expressing a view on, this kind of dispute about Abigail Schreier's book on transgender issues, which a lot of people find very upsetting. They find it very troubling. And there was a a move, I believe a successful move, to get Amazon to stop carrying it. And it both strikes me as obvious, like before Amazon, right? If some bookstore owner didn't want to carry some book because she felt like it was bad, it was a bad book for the world, you'd say, of course, right? Like nobody is under any obligation to sell a book 
in their store. And you can't, for one thing, fit every book on the shelves of a store. So you have to make decisions. And it's like the core of freedom is that you get to decide what you do. Just like I decide what I publish on my website. I decide which guests I host on this show. But then Amazon is so big that it does feel like they are in a censorship type role. And it also feels like almost a kind of quasi-official verdict of society that certain views are now being put beyond the pale because it sends a signal to other actors in society, right? In a way that, you know, like if some random bookstore owner in, I don't know, you know, like there's a bookstore in Phoenix and it won't carry some book. And it's like, nobody even knows about that. Nobody even cares. But the decisions of these big companies have a kind of social impact that goes beyond the sort of literal mechanical influence that they have. At the same time, I mean, people obviously have very strong views about what they do and don't want to be associated with. And I don't know, I find it hard to know what to say about this ultimately. And I I hope you have some wisdom. Well, we protested the notion that her book should be banned from Amazon. And our perspective as a free expression organization is that that is essentially the wrong approach to dealing with ideas you disagree with, even if you disagree with them vociferously, that the effort to expunge them from society is, you know, ultimately won't succeed, that you end up drawing attention to these books, sometimes amplifying the ideas instilling this sense of unjust grievance in those who adhere to those ideas that can fuel them even further. And so we found ourselves more and more in the position of having to stand up for institutions, whether it's a platform like Amazon or a bookstore, because actually it has come up. Increasingly, we've had bookstores reaching out to us about protests from their Customers like Andy and Go's book being one example where customers of Powell's books in Portland protested the availability of his book on the store's website. And to us, the notion of trying to impose a kind of ideological purity from the outside, we've also seen it in publishing houses where sometimes the employees of the publishing house now are sort of taking up arms in a sense, or or not arms, but going out into the streets in some instances and protesting the decision, for example, to publish memoirs from members of the Trump administration. And what I worry about is that it's going to drive us toward an even more balkanized information ecosystem, which we already have online and on cable news where your political leanings dictate where you go to find your content. I think book publishers and bookstores are really important as remaining places where, you know, we kind of come together and whoever you are, you can wander into a bookstore and there'll be things you agree with, things you disagree with. Maybe there'll be things you discover that you would have written off entirely. But once you pick them up and have a look, you know, even if you don't read the book cover to cover, you know, it's more interesting than you would have anticipated. And I think we need to stand up for those kinds of institutions in society that have an encompassing approach to the breadth of views that can be expressed, even if some of those views are deeply objectionable. We will always have, and I don't object to, the existence of niche 
content purveyors where there is a strong ideological lens. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think it would be a mistake to try to drive all of our institutions in that direction. Yeah, I mean, this is what has come to be concerning to me is a kind of shift in what we expect as a society. I mean, I don't particularly care if Andy Noe's book is on the shelves at Powell's or not. It wouldn't occur to me to go like looking around and hunting for it there. But if people start protesting its availability there because there has been a success in getting some other book out of other stores, and then Powell's pulls the book, that then puts pressure on every other bookstore in America with every other book that ever comes out to be like, well, are you really going to carry that? When we used to have a social presumption that like, yeah, just like lots of books will be sold everywhere and book publishers will be publishing all kinds of things. And you would say, well, why are you publishing this memoir? And it's like, well, we're a publishing house. Like we, we publish people's memoirs. That's what we do. It's not an endorsement. But once you start down the road of sort of selectively striking stuff down, it creates the expectation that you'll do it in the future right? That the decision to carry a book is a form of endorsement. And then you have to be very narrow because, you know, I personally, I don't know, I would only endorse a fairly, not that many books that actually come out. But I think it's good that there are lots of books. I read books that I don't agree with and I think about them and I don't always know until I've read it whether I agree with it or not. And that's part of participating in intellectual society, right? Is you want a world in which people are just a little open to some give and take. And I remember being quite taken aback when I had a book that was out and I was invited to go on Ben Shapiro's podcast and talk about it. And I, of course, said yes, because I'm trying to sell books. And, you know, people were complaining to me. They're like, why are you going on that guy's show? He's terrible. And I was thinking, it was just such an alien mentality to me. Like the idea that I would have a specific defense for appearing on somebody's podcast when I was invited to talk about a book that I was trying to promote. And I'm sure, yes, like there is a line, right? There is some hypothetical podcast out there that would be so beyond the pale that I wouldn't go on it. But just like people have popular shows and people who want to promote ideas go on those shows. And that's just kind of how the world works. And I worry about a society in which every decision about every guest, about every book on the shelves carries all this weight, right? This like, how could you agree to do that, to lose that presumption that we just sort of have books and ideas and guests floating around there? It seems very alien to me. And yet extremely, I guess it feels very obvious to, I guess, a lot of people who are younger than me. Yeah, I think it is a kind of creeping absolutist mentality where every decision is sort of an ideological litmus test. And it's really not clear how far it goes. You know, we know, for example, J.K. Rowling has become very controversial because of some of the things she said about transgender issues. Does this mean Harry Potter is no longer going to be carried in bookstores at a certain point? You know, is Mike Pence's memoir going to be banned? Because, you know, while many of us might want to hear what he has to say, how he justifies himself, what it was like to be there, you know, inside the chamber on January 6th. You know, there are other people who believe he was, you know, complicit in unconscionable crimes and that that should be reason for his book to be expunged or buried or relegated to the far reaches of a conservative publishing terrarium. So, 
I think it's a, it is a real danger and I see it more and more. I hear publishers and editors sort of talking about that in relation to what goes on the pages of a newspaper or an op-ed page. I think social media fuels it in that it only takes one antagonist somewhere to sort of look at something through a particular lens and point out why, you know, there's something in the writer's background that is objectionable, or there's a line that's phrased in a way that could be construed as sexist or racist or otherwise offensive. And for the whole thing to sort of gain momentum and blow up and get other people who are aligned with that cause kind of excited about it and in a mode of protesting. And so I think it's really important for institutions like Pen America, individuals who have influence to stand up for the breadth of ideas, even objectionable ideas for, and I, you know, I talk about this at length in the book to stand up for the expression of unpopular viewpoints, even if you disagree with them. It's not easy to do, but ultimately, you know, that's what creates the space for all of us to push boundaries, to take risks. And, you know, I do hear from a lot of people who are worried about doing that in this environment. You know, I think it's important to say that from many people's perspective, this is a rightful kind of corrective and a rebalancing of power. And it has a lot to do with historically excluded groups asserting themselves and pointing out that, you know, certain patterns of speech or ideas that maybe were long accepted are, in fact, pernicious, that have, you know, severe consequences for people in historically excluded or targeted groups. And, you know, those consequences need to be brought to light and taken more seriously. And I think there's some validity to that. I think those perspectives are worth hearing out and reckoning with. But I do worry that we're sort you know, we're sort of at a moment of, you know, I hope it's the swing of a pendulum, uh, sort of in, in the direction of a rather absolutist approach, but that will come back, you know, once we've gone through this phase, uh, and there is a greater kind of reckoning and sensitization, we'll come back to a medium where there is more space to take risks, and even the risk of offense. Yeah, I mean, th- this is, a, I, I think, a tricky, you know, subject for me personally. I mean, I try to be reflective, right, and say, well, you know, because it, it is kind of easy for me, I guess, to say as like a white guy, be like, yeah, it's fine, you know, let, let people say, like, what's the harm when you do have, you know, demographic change in the media industry and in academia and other realms of society and people are making new claims and they're saying, you know, well, you just, you haven't been listening to us in the past. And I'm never 100% sure what to say about stuff like that. You know, I'm Jewish and, you know, it occurs to me that we do not, I think, try to like purge culture of, you know, old writers who did anti-Semitic things or had anti-Semitic views. I was assigned T.S. Eliot poems in school and I don't know, like, what are you going to do about that? It seems like an inescapable feature of society. But it also does seem to me that anti-Semitic speech in the present day has been very, very, very stigmatized. And that people, especially non-Jewish people, tend to sort of walk on eggshells around criticisms of Israel and things like that. And that there is a lot of censoriousness around those topics, which reflects the fact that not historically, but 
presently in America, Jewish people have a lot of social and political and economic clout and are able to be quite forceful in sort of pushing back against kinds of speech that they don't like. And I see people who will be sort of free speech defenders Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, then looking at Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar saying things about foreign policy. And suddenly it's a lot of, you know, tropes and second order associations and, you know, how dare you say that kind of standards. And there are people who try to, you know, maintain an even keel about these sort of topics, including when they implicate their groups. But it feels very hard to me to really get a principled balance. Like, people really are more sensitive when they perceive it as impacting themselves personally. And so it matters who's represented. I guess that may ultimately mean that a more diverse sort of cultural elite becomes more censorious because you have mutual deference among members of all different kinds of groups. And there's something, there's a loss to that, but also a gain, right? Like we want to have more people represented, more voices at the table, but it feels very difficult to me to do that. I mean, to to really authentically have people present without that creating a kind of scolding log roll. Yeah, I would, I guess shift the paradigm a little bit from kind of the idea that an inclusive power structure would dictate more censoriousness to the idea that it requires more conscientiousness, which is really the first principle that I outline in the book is the notion that living in a diverse society where we're striving toward equity does demand greater conscientiousness on all of our behalves, that you just have to be more cognizant of who is around you, what their sensitivities and sensibilities are, how they like to be described, what might offend them, you know, a little bit about maybe what the historical tropes are in relation to different groups. And I think that cognizance and awareness and willingness to sort of interrogate our differences and unearth the context that lies behind some of our speech You know, I think ultimately that's elucidating and informative and kind of fosters a richer dialogue and a greater ability to connect with other people, engage in meaningful give and take, you know, ultimately is an enabler of speech rather than a constraint on speech. I think, yes, it does mean there are probably certain things, you know, we may have grown up saying that seemed kind of perfectly normal and okay to us as kids that, you know, we would no longer say But, you know, to me, that's actually kind of part of the evolution of living together in society and striving for a more perfect kind of social structure. And so, you know, I would sort of stress that aspect of it. I ultimately think that the opening up of whether it's journalism or publishing or the arts to a greater array of voices represents a kind of boon to free speech, because if those voices are excluded, left out, if there's somebody, you know, sitting in the classroom who feels that because of their socioeconomic background or their gender or their race or ethnicity that, you know, it's daunting to speak up and, you know, this classroom is dominated by people who are, you know, from a different sort of origin, you know, if those people are silent and hang back from the discussion, you know, the marketplace of ideas loses out, you know, there are voices that are not being heard. And so, creating an environment where everybody feels genuinely sort of positioned and empowered to speak 
you know, for me is a win for free speech. And I think it's important to, you know, as we think about how free speech can work for us in the 21st century, we have to think not just about the constraints, but about the enablers and about the voices that aren't being heard. And so I ultimately think once we have greater diversity, for example, you know, there's a lot of transformation underway at the top levels within journalism, within publishing. I think that's going to make space for greater diversity of viewpoints. I think there'll be kind of less hung up on who has the right to tell which stories and who ought to vet those stories and more of a sense that these cultural industries or intellectual industries are equitable and inclusive. And, you know, whatever that looks like and comes out with is a fair representation of various swaths of society. Okay, let's take a break. And I want to ask you a couple questions about academia specifically. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. So I think the place where where that kind of tension, to me, seems most evident is on sort of college and university environments. Because there you have... On the one hand, like a tradition of academic freedom, which is a sort of unusually strong culture of free speech, right, around tenure and like it's really important for people to be able to say what they want uh, because that's how we explore the realm of ideas. But you're also teaching young people, often in a residential environment, and we are trying to, like, we want people to feel comfortable and learn, right? I mean, it's not to say that, like, no one should ever encounter difficult ideas, but it's, I mean, I remember college, you, like, you live there, literally, and you're surrounded by people, and you go to these classrooms, and to some people, it's like, their parents went to the same college, and it's very natural, but other people are nervous, and you want to make them feel like, no, you belong here, you're included, you're part of the process, you know, you should do your homework. I mean, I think you see it play out all the time, this incredible just gap between that function of this is a a space for the exploration of ideas where it's not the job of administrators to tell people what to say and do. And this is a home for teenagers. And it is absolutely the job of administrators to like make sure that everybody is having a good experience. And the fact that the ideological climate is just several ticks to the left of American society at large creates this sort of weird environment where the expression of very banal ideas can be sort of stigmatized as like right wing in a campus context. As someone who is like not involved in university life at all, but does 
like rely on the published work of academics to have a sense of what's true about the world, it has come to really make me worry, like how reliable scholarly output is in a world where people fear sort of social and administrative consequences for saying things that make people upset. Yeah, absolutely. Look, a lot of the thinking behind Dare to Speak grew out of work that we've done over the last four or five years on college campuses at PEN America. We've done a couple of major reports. We have a whole website on how to navigate college campus speech controversies because of the tensions that you were talking about. The fact that the university is simultaneously, you know, a home for students who come from increasingly diverse backgrounds and we have unprecedented levels of racial diversity among collegiate student bodies, unprecedented levels of first generation students on campus for the first time. And, you know, that creates new demands in terms of what kind of environment can enable true inclusion kind of across all of those boundaries. And so how do we, you know, bring that university about one that's truly inclusive to all people without compromising inclusivity when it comes to all of ideas. And in the work that we've done, I think there are solutions and ways to approach this. And I think kind of the more work you do to make the campus a more comfortable environment, sort of at the human level and to ensure and foster social integration and to support students from a mental health perspective and to take into account differences in background and ensure that students have the support they need to succeed, the more leeway that you have in the intellectual realm, I think, to introduce difficult ideas, to navigate sensitive discussions, to, you know, for professors to publish even controversial studies and theories and, you know, have those be absorbed by a campus in in a way that people can cope with. And so I think it's a kind of paired responsibility of the university. And, you know, they're trying to do it. it. Often it's imperfect and very much a work in progress. But I think it is achievable and that the more inclusive campus need not and must not come at the expense of the open campus when it comes to academic freedom and diversity of viewpoint. And we give a lot of very concrete advice about how to make that a reality when it comes to, for example, calls to cancel a controversial speaker who's been invited to campus or to decommission a club that takes a political viewpoint that some people find offensive or how to react to protests at a campus event. There are ways of navigating these things and we kind of spell it all out in a lot of our research and publications that I think can allow the university to be a standard bearer for free speech, but also to assert its own values and values that help make all students feel comfortable. And I mean, do you have advice to sort of, you know, individual like faculty members, you know, if you are working somewhere and you, you know, feel okay, you, you I'm going to put it this way. You don't particularly want to be a controversialist. Like, your goal in life is not to be a free speech martyr who, you know, writes Wall Street Journal op-eds about how the kids today are losing it. But, like, you have some opinions that you think are a little out of fashion, and you might want to be able to say them without causing a huge scandal or an uproar. Like, is there anything to be done to sort of when between those poles of becoming like the notorious campus speech 
person and being someone who is like living fearfully and doesn't think you can have like occasional center-right views on positions of public interest? Yes. I mean, really the whole book in a sense is, you know, devoted to trying to help that person get their ideas out without inadvertently sort of tripping into the terrain of becoming, uh, you know, one of these free speech provocateurs. You know, the idea of conscientiousness, that if you have something that is contestable, that you want to get across, you know, a viewpoint or opinion, you don't want to stumble into offending somebody on the basis of, you know, their identity or using an out-of-date term, for example, to refer to women or LGBTQ students on the way to articulating that contestable opinion. You want to be kind of careful and scrupulous and avoid unintentional, unnecessary, unforced offensives and sort of earn the credibility to say, you know, what it is that you have to say that you know people are going to disagree with. You want to take into account the counter arguments and sort of reflect the fact that you have taken them seriously, you've thought about them, you've taken them into account, you have respect for them. So you can lay that out, you know, at the beginning as a kind of prelude or a welcome mat as you draw people into hopefully a willingness to hear out your ideas. You want to make your points in an environment where people do have the opportunity to push back ask questions, reflect a different point of view, not to shut that down or to dismiss it. And so I think it can be done. And I give examples in the book of people who've talked about, you know, really sort of difficult ideas, you know, racial differences when it comes to, you know, health and, you know, other very sort of sensitive third rail kinds of topics that people have been able to do research on, to talk about, to publish on, because they've done it in a sensitive and conscientious way. And I hope that becomes a roadmap for others, because I think it's extremely important that people not give up. There are really difficult ideas that we as a society need to continue to be able to talk about, you know, whether it's affirmative action or you touched on Israel Palestine, you know, these are topics, immigration, that we can't simply shut to the side because the risk of going there is so great. You're going to get trolled. You're going to be harassed. You might lose your job. So, you know, the alternative becomes silence. I think that's really dangerous to our discourse, to our policymaking, to how we're educating the next generation. And I also think, you know, institutions and people who inhabit them should think about their social and cultural legitimacy in all directions that I've seen a lot of people sort of baffled looking at the Trump years and like, well, why do we get ignored by certain swaths of the population? And, you know, if you want to, as a journalism institution, as an academic institution, as any kind of institution, right? I mean, if you want to be taken seriously by like more conservative people, you have to walk the walk of being willing to engage with them, right, in a way that makes sense and where they are. And then by the same token, like, if you want to be an inclusive institution, you know, racially and and in other respects, like, you have to, like, actually go do that, right? Like, do some of the work in terms of having diverse leadership and things like that, right? That it, I think, can feel very easy to sort of pay lip service to diversity considerations and then shunt it off to the side. And then it can come back to sort of 
bite you in the end when you don't have the standing to kind of, you know, take a principled stance in favor of ideas and things like that because you haven't actually done the work internally. No, I think that's right. And that's why I am hopeful that as our institutions become more diverse, that their ability to withstand some of these pressures is going to be enhanced because they will have that credibility in speaking out on behalf of a diversity of viewpoints and they won't be vulnerable to the charge that their position simply reflects, you know, the interests and prerogatives of a kind of very traditional leadership structure that's never been challenged. Right, exactly. So I should let you go here, uh, but want to see if is there any, you know, last big points that you think that people need to know? Obviously, free speech is a, a very large topic. We didn't even get into the international dimensions of this really at all, but that is an important part of the picture as well. Um, so yeah, final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, look, as Americans, we're very much accustomed to thinking of free speech as you know, the work of the courts and lawyers and our Constitution and the First Amendment. And what we see increasingly on, you know, just about all the issues that you and I have touched on is that it is going to be up to citizens as to whether we continue to have the kind of vibrant, open society where there's a diverse range of ideas, there are unexpected and surprising ideas, people are able to push boundaries to challenge orthodoxy, it's going to depend on us and whether we can fashion institutions that are set up to kind of tolerate and even invite and encourage that. And so what I'm urging is for all of us to take more seriously as kind of part of our obligations as citizens, as part of what it's going to take to sustain our democracy as it's under such heavy pressure to really see ourselves as free speech advocates and think about what that means, you know, at the personal level, within the workplace, in the institutions that we inhabit, and also on the larger canvas when we get to questions of large social media companies, governments, entities like Amazon and the dominion that they wield over free speech. And so it's a big responsibility, but I think ultimately as citizens, one that we need to rise to. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Suzanne Nossel, Pen America. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our new engineer, Neth Smith-Savadov, and producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.